All right, back on the Young Turks. We got a couple of great guests for you guys. Then we actually have a lot more news, including an outrageous claim by Donald Trump that he did just a little while ago in the post game for the members. That's tyt.com slash join to become a member. If you're on YouTube, you can just click the blue button down below on join. There's different layers to it. You'll figure it out. You're awesome. And we got old school tonight with me and Mark Thompson. So we got a ton for members tonight. Members get to watch that live. And my next guest is a new. Challenger to Mitch McConnell, not Amy McGrath, new challenger, serious challenger here, so don't miss that. Now, joining me in studio is Ramesh Sirnavasan. He is a freaking guest host on the Young Turks, actually, and he's author the author of the new book Beyond the Valley. He's also, of course, a professor of information studies and design media arts at UCLA. And Ramesh, it's great to have you back on, brother. Great to have you. Nice okay. to see you, man. All right. Nice to see you. Absolutely, great to see you. Okay, so beyond the valley. So first of all, let's start big picture, okay, yeah, and then yeah. we'll burrow down. Sounds good. So people think in simplistic terms. They go, in the old days, it was internet good, okay, gives information, democratizes everything. Yeah. Then it became internet bad. It helped Trump win. And it's now we can't control things anymore. Okay, <laughs> right. So I love this question. You ready? Internet, good or bad? Go. <laughs> Concentration of power associated with the internet, death to democracy, bad for working class, bad for minority and vulnerable people all over the world. Okay, so super interesting. Now let's <laughs> let's get into it. Sort um, of an answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so seriously, um, let's talk about. Um, I know the upsides of the internet, and you know I, I've, uh, and it's not just a thing. I mean, it's so hard to wrap your arms around the entirety of the internet. It's almost like talking about the entirety of humanity, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. obviously, getting rid of the gatekeepers for me, for example, in terms of media, allowed us to do this show. It allowed us to connect to the audience, and in a sense, democratized media. Now, it also let out the ghouls and goblins, etc. So, when you say the things that you said about the downsides of the internet. Expand on that for me. How did it do that? And yeah. then, and then, if, then we'll talk about how it, how to fix it. Yeah. So the internet was actually just celebrated. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the internet mm-hmm. just two weeks ago, the day that the book came out. Oh the wow! The Beyond the Valley came Man, out. Man, Gore worked on and it pretty early. <laughs> okay. This was long before that. Yeah. And you know, the internet was publicly funded, right? It was taxpayer funded, and actually, the web itself was a nonprofit endeavor. And so that is why it felt democratic and it is democratic in the sense that like you and the Young Turks kind of started and kind of maintains its presence as an internet sort of medium, right? Mm-hmm. As an internet content producer. What happened is as all of us began to put more and more content up there, we needed to go somewhere to sort through all of it. But we didn't really know what the choices were that were being made in terms of the information we would find. You know, we were communicating with one another, right? Like I would post something on the internet, you would post something on the internet. But there was a little gremlin in the middle that was sniffing out what we were sharing with one another, routing the information in particular ways for the purposes of those companies that were building those technologies. They aren't actually gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened is intermediaries came into the middle of all of our exchanges online, and they do deserve to be compensated. 
for the efficiency they provide and how good they are for consumers and the potential for them to take profoundly democratic media sources like the Young Turks and make them large and viral. The problem is, is in the middle, they were collecting, monitoring, extracting, and behaviorally manipulating our exchanges with one another online. And that's what we've seen happen with the internet itself. And so what Beyond the Valley, the new book is about, is not just about what's happened to the internet, but how all these experiences in our lives, economically, politically, even personally, are mediated through technology. There's a technologization of our lives, right? Like our, our shoes will be chips with, with heels, our cities will be, be embedded with sensors. And so that is not inherently problematic. What is problematic is the fact that a few private corporations that are interested in their ends and their ends only because they're private corporations are optimizing and extracting and manipulating those exchanges for their own benefit. And the rest of us have no clue what's going on. All we know is that it doesn't necessarily always serve our interests, right? Because what these companies have found is that more than anything, what they need is to gather, collect, surveil, and behaviorally shift our attitudes in ways that suit their own purposes. So that's kind of large scale what happened to the internet. Control occurred with the decentralized network. And the way it occurred is we had to go through these intermediary companies. And so, okay, it's great. They deserve some, they deserve attention, they deserve some credit, they deserve some compensation for what they've created. But should it come at a zero sum? Should it come at the cost of working people? Should it the come should it come at the cost of democracy? Should it come at the cost of vulnerable people of color communities, indigenous peoples, global south communities. This book calls all of the all of that out and argues for an alternative where we get the efficiency, these platforms get compensated, but not at the cost to the rest of us. So that's great. I, I want to get back to how it discriminates against those folks in a second. Right. But uh, it's interesting. I mean, this happens uh, all the time uh, and uh, unsurprisingly, the corporate media doesn't talk about it for, because they're actually one of the people who took advantage. So for example, we fund uh, research on drugs all the time. So we socialize the costs and then we hand them off to drug companies and they privatize the gains. Exactly. So we paid for it, but they get the, uh, the benefit. And in terms of the, uh, the public airwaves for television, the, the, the original deal was you're getting the public airwaves for free, even though it's worth, turns out, billions of dollars. But in return, you have to do real news. That's right. Then they just discarded that deal and they said, eventually everybody forgot about it. And they're like, oh, we don't have to do real news. We can just yeah. do news that benefits us. And so there's this, and because the media is also corporate, there is this programmed naivete about how what corporations real intent is. Their intent is very clear and it's in the law, maximize profit. It's, they literally have a fiduciary responsibility. And valuation and speculated valuation because companies like Uber, which are actually the largest companies in taxis in the history of the world, they call themselves tech companies. They're not actually making a lot of money. They are gathering data, which allows them to be valued at so much, over $100 billion. That's right. So in a sense, again, we created the internet with government money, with right. all of us paying into it. And now some companies, yes, that have created real value. I totally agree with that. But have now just kind of gotten in there and and say no, we get all the value. Okay, right. so what can you do about that? I mean, yeah. can we go back and say, well, wait a minute though, we created the internet as in the American people in a sense. Yeah. So is that an avenue where we can go back? Uh, whether it's television guys with the public airwaves or the internet that the U.S. government and hence taxpayers paid for, or is there a different approach to this in terms of how to 
if we're gonna mediate with the, those companies, how do we do it and, and what are we solving for? Yeah, it's a great question, Cenk. I mean, we, like I don't go onto YouTube to watch any content that YouTube makes. I don't go onto Facebook to watch any content that Facebook creates. I don't even know who works for YouTube. They're barely, they're not that many people working there. There are barely many people working for Facebook, just engineers, right? All that's what I'm what I'm getting at is all the labor and the content itself that we go to these technologies for, even the drivers for Uber, are all private citizens who are not actual employees of these companies, and they're largely uncompensated or undercompensated when it comes to gig economy workers. So that's kind of just backing up what you're saying. So public investments drive private corporate return. And of course, the private corporations, as we talk about on the Young Turks all the time, very rarely pay back anything to the public. So what do we do about it, right? That's, that's the real question. What we need is every manner possible, politically, economically, and so on, to ask for greater balance in this ecosystem. It can't just be private disrupting every aspect of our lives that we know it. It can't just be private corporate power because that's gonna actually tear apart the very fragments of what's left of American justice and American democracy in what's largely an oligarchic society that we live in. So what do we do about that? We need to do several things. We need to make sure that a digital economy works for everybody. And that's actually something I'm trying to work with and influence Senator Sanders campaign around. Um, as, a, as a new surrogate for them, that's one. So what does that mean? That means the economic returns through this technologization of our world can't just go to the 1% or the one, one, you know, one tenth or one hundredth of the 1% that actually represent those investors and executives at these tech companies. We can pay people for data, I have some issues with that concern. We can think about Andrew Yang's proposals like dividend programs, he calls it a freedom dividend, universal basic income. But we can also think about jobs of the future that ensure that people have through these technological transitions just well compensated forms of work. We can even think about an Uber where the drivers for Uber actually own the equity for Uber. Imagine that, right? That's the workplace democracy program that Bernie's put out and his corporate accountability program. So these are, I know I sound like a surrogate, because, but, but these <laughs> no. policies are so amazing, Jenk. So basically, the point what I'm getting at is the digital economy needs to not be extractive, needs to not be zero sum, it needs to lift all boats. Similarly, politically, we need to engage in, pro, in projects that audit these systems on every level, ensure that stakeholder communities that are affected by these systems actually have power over the design and auditing of those systems. I can give you an example. So Facebook, for example, which monetizes like crazy journalistic content, right? Facebook gets all the dough and journalists are kind of stuck wondering when their stuff may or may not show up or will people be redirected to their pages. Facebook said, hey journalists, we're gonna create a new news feature. A tab as a news feature. But the problem there is Facebook's not letting those journalists have power over how that feature functions or will clearly compensate those journalists. It's not, nothing is transparent. We are subject to private hidden algorithmic choices. Everything in our lives can be collected and monetized. I could buy your credit card records. Remember we talked about that two years ago? Yep. I could buy your credit card records and figure out what I wanna do with that, along with your Facebook data, along with your Instagram data, along with your search data, if, if that was made accessible. And I can aggregate that data to take you and make you do whatever I want you to do. So real That's quick. That's power over, the, over one's identity. Yeah, so I wanted to go back to 
how this leads to discrimination against yeah. disadvantaged communities. So how does it do that? Yeah, so the internet, so a lot of people, are like this is a, a really amazing moment for Beyond the Valley, this new book. Because mm. everyone's freaked out about what's happening with the internet. But largely the reason why people are concerned is because of privacy issues. But actually at scale, this creates much larger problems. Because if people building AI and algorithmic systems, artificial intelligence and AI and algorithmic systems, which are basically what every tech company invests in, if the people building those systems tend to be white, male, and, and, and concerned only with their private corporate return, they are not gonna be inclusive of the populations their systems are going to affect. That's why I think I've given examples with you on the Young Turks of how facial recognition systems across the board misidentify Serena Williams, Oprah, Michelle Obama as male. Or when you used to search for gorillas, at least at some points on Google search results, you would get pictures of black people. I can give you millions of examples of this, and the book is full of them. But the issue here is these systems are built by technologists who are not part of those populations. They are also learning systems. They're learning from data sets that represent the inequalities of our world. So we see this again and again and again, the reinforcement of bias. Like for another example is a predictive policing system or a predictive courtroom system that I describe in Beyond the Valley, like in the new book. They have found those systems again and again and again to take black criminal defendants who have no felony records and predict them to be at a higher rate of violent crime than white defendants who have felony convictions. It's, it's all what you put in the code. Brave and new look, digital world, that's yeah, what I call it, brave yeah. new digital world. So we're out of time, but guys, look, I learn everything. Every every time we talk, I learn something new, right? And, and I realized as you were explaining all this that the code is everything, right? It's, it's what you put in to get the result that you want out. And the code that rules us all is maximize profit. And so that's built in to what we have now created as worldwide values. Like the value that rules us all, that goes into the decision making and the incentive structure at those companies that are influencing culture more than any entity has ever influenced culture on our planet is maximize profit. And so it's a fair question to ask, is that the value and the culture that we wanna create for the whole planet? And yeah. and those are among the things that Ramesh tackles in Beyond the Valley, how innovators around the world are overcoming inequality and creating technologies of tomorrow. So everybody check it out. Thank you so much for being on it's as such always. Such a pleasure. Thank All you right. for having me, man. Absolutely. Thank you. And when we come back, a new challenger to Mitch McConnell. He better watch out. So don't miss it. We'll be right back. All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, joining me now is Charles Booker, is a state representative in the state of Kentucky. A new candidate for United States Senate on the Democratic side against Mitch McConnell. Uh, representative Booker, great to have you on. Jenkins, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you. Um, so, Charles, uh, let's talk about this race. This is exciting. Um, when did you announce, by the way? So I announced the exploratory um, actually formally today, but we launched a video yesterday. All right. And made the announcement to the world that we are exploring, making some history and taking a stand for Kentucky. So uh, look, you're gonna get the same uh, questions uh, everywhere. I'll start that way and then we'll get into uh, more interesting questions. But the, of <laughs> course, the, the first thing everybody's gonna ask you is, look, Hillary Clinton lost Donald Trump in Kentucky by 30 points. So um, how do you take out McConnell and how do you beat him? Yeah, well, you know, there's a real 
energy on the ground. And what I've seen over the years, and especially in this past year, is that folks are ready for change. And it's undeniable, and it can't wait. We can't wait. And what you've seen is that a lot of folks that took a chance on supporting Trump, they made that decision in large measure because they felt like he hurt them. Uh, what he did do is call out the fact that the system is broken. But of course, what he did after that is just lie all the way through, weaponize hate, and exploit and rob a lot of folks who are realizing that, wait a minute, we've been sold snake oil. And I think the opportunity now for, uh, for us as Kentuckians is to stand up and speak that truth and push for our own power, take our power back against folks that are corrupt and seeking to rob us like Mitch McConnell and Matt Bevin, who thankfully we got rid of uh, last week, even though he's trying to fight and hang on. Um, and so the reality is this is bigger than politics, it's bigger than party. We're trying to create a movement that elevates the voices of unheard Kentuckians from corner to corner, folks who feel left out, drowned out, blocked out, demeaned, and exploited by folks like Mitch McConnell, who has become one of the richest politicians in America. And he was seeking the office and was elected right after I was born. So my entire life, this guy's been screwing us. And it's <laughs> time for regular folks to stand up and fight back, and that's what we're gonna do. I like that kind of talk. So uh, now, uh, of course, you're not the only Democrat in the race. Um, Chuck Schumer has deemed that it must be Amy McGrath, and she uh, has raised a lot of money. So uh, why you instead of McGrath in the Democratic primary? Well, you know, this, this call for me to explore this um, is really central to why I got into politics to begin with. Uh, I come from the West End of Louisville. I, I live now in the poorest zip code in the state, and my journey Overcoming obstacles, having a ration of insulin just to uh, survive, and seeing my mom go without eating so I could eat. That's the story of a lot of Kentuckians. Um, overcoming obstacles in spite of folks turning them down like Mitch McConnell. And so my concern and my, my charge in exploring this is really about who can best represent everyday Kentuckians who have been ignored for too long. And, and we can't afford to play politics. Uh, the reality is that money has been treated as most important and we get left out. We need, a, we need to end that immediately because we're dying while we play these games. Um, the past couple of years, I've had cousins murdered each year. And people all across the Commonwealth are having to make decisions whether to keep the lights on or pay for insulin or rationing it like I did. And so it's a matter of urgency. It really is a matter of saying that this is a moment we cannot sit down on and we cannot wait, we cannot play politics. And the movement's real. From all over the Commonwealth, teachers standing up like never before, coal miners standing on the track saying these coal companies that are trying to rob and exploit them and then file bankruptcy and leave them high and dry are not going to keep screwing them. People all across the Commonwealth are saying that enough is enough. Yeah. And we need bold leadership. And I, I feel convicted personally because I have two girls I got to stand for. Yeah. And my cousins who were murdered can't speak for themselves anymore, so I got to speak for them. And we're gonna build a movement for all Kentuckians to feel heard. And we're gonna surprise a lot of people. So Representative Booker, are you gonna run as a moderate as McGrath is, or are you gonna run as a progressive? Well, man, I'll tell you right now, um, we can't afford to play games. Um, this is a time where poverty is what gets handed down generationally. Um, if you look at all the measurables that determine the quality of life, Kentucky is at the bottom. Um, so we can't afford to simply be moderate when our problems are so um, extreme and exacerbated by the orchestrator, Mitch McConnell. 
And so I think we need bold leadership. And, and what I've seen in my work as a legislator, but also as a statewide director of Fish and Wildlife and as a legislative staffer across the Commonwealth is that people from all ends of the political spectrum want change. And they want bold change. And so it really isn't about being progressive as, as opposed to fighting for progress. Making sure everybody has health care is something that Kentuckians need and deserve. Making sure that we deliver on a Green New Deal and provide thousands of good paying jobs. That's something that Kentuckians need and deserve. And when you sit down and listen to minors, they'll tell you they know those jobs are leaving. And they'll also tell you that Trump was lying to them and that they look forward to being a leader in fighting for a new energy economy and a new energy future for our Commonwealth. So it, it really just boils down to listening to folks, elevating their voices, being accountable to them, empowering them, and building a movement from the bottom up that says, no matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, no matter what you believe, that you matter. So this is our moment. So when you say no matter what you look like, I'm reminded of Nancy Pelosi dismissing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's win after she won the primary, saying, "Oh, it's just a demographic thing, right?" And and it turns out, of course, she was factually incorrect on that. But my guess is a lot of the pundits are going to say you have a demographic challenge in Kentucky because there aren't a lot of African Americans in that state. So. How do you answer that? How do you get beyond the skepticism that you'll get from a lot of the media? Yeah, and you're exactly right. That is something that I've heard all throughout my career working in not only Louisville, but across the Commonwealth. And the way you get past that is acknowledge the truth. And the truth is that we have so much more in common than we do otherwise. And I think Kentuckians are showing, even with this past election, in electing a young man of color as attorney general, that people are ready for change and people are looking for folks that can represent them. And I think that it's an opportunity to tell the story about how Kentuckians have so much in common that if we lock arms together, stand together, that we can push for real solutions and real change and beat Mitch McConnell in the process. And and what I know for a fact is you can take a picture of my neighborhood right now, show it to folks, and a lot of people think that's Appalachia. We have so much in common, and our frustrations are largely the same. And we need leadership that can build bridges and not use hate and division as a weapon. Um, and Kentucky's entitled to that, and that's why uh, Matt Bevin's gone. So, uh, what are the uh, issues that you're going to focus on in your race and really emphasize? Yeah, so for me, like I said, this is a matter of survival. Um, my belief and my foundation of faith is what convicts me to stand now, um, knowing that we're more than conquerors. So we don't have to accept someone like Mitch McConnell. And so what I'm fighting for and what I propose is that we be bold right now because our families are suffering too much. So that's why I'm proud to say I support a Green New Deal. Because in my community right now, we have brownfields around us. We have a, a area that's called Rubber Town where you have to hold your nose when you go by there and you'll see film of black soot and chemicals on the homes in the area. We can't fish in the ponds in our neighborhood because they're contaminated. And no one has access to the river source that is right up the street from me. So for me, this is a matter of fighting for our families, standing up for those folks who go into those mines and sacrifice day in and day out, coming out of them with black lung and then having someone like Mitch McConnell turn their back on them. So I'm also going to fight for Medicare for all because I, 
I tell my story often as a type one diabetic. I know those struggles. I know them even to this day. And no one should die because they don't have enough money in their pocket. And then the big thing for me, very structurally, is fighting against generational poverty. And that means supporting organized labor. That means raising wages and making sure that folks are getting paid what they deserve. And I'm in support of a $15 minimum wage, but we need much more than that, especially for all that we provide for this commonwealth. There are men and women that work so hard and get robbed and exploited. And so we need to stand against that. And I also believe that because of all that we produce and the tremendous value that Kentuckians put into the economy, that we should have a basic income. We should make sure that every family is taken care of. That's about taking care of home. And folks all across the Commonwealth, no matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, no matter what they believe or their party, that's my family. And so this declaration for me is taken up for my family. So I need people to understand what Representative Booker is referring to when he talks about the $15 minimum wage. The House already passed it and Mitch McConnell is the single person in the country who is preventing it. He says he will not even allow a vote in the Senate because he doesn't want the Republicans to be embarrassed when they vote against higher wages. So if Mitch McConnell is not defeated, you will not get higher wages in Kentucky or anywhere else. And by the way, he also used that as to hold his own state hostage. He says, well, look, you can't do higher minimum wage in Kentucky because then they'll take the jobs in Alabama or Mississippi or Michigan, right? But now if you did a national minimum wage, that wouldn't be a problem and your wages would be higher in Kentucky. But McConnell knows that and he works for his donors. That's why you need somebody real, someone who's gonna actually represent folks in Kentucky. Charles Booker, there's a bold challenge and I appreciate you coming on. Oh, I wanna tell everybody what the website is, bookerforkentucky.com. And obviously you can also donate there. The links are always down below if you're watching later on Facebook and YouTube. And don't forget, Democratic candidate Andy Bashir for governor just beat Matt Bevin as, as Charles alluded to. So yes, Democrats can win in Kentucky, and they just did. So Charles Booker, thank you so much for coming on the Young Turks, really appreciate it. Thank you, brother, we're building a movement in Kentucky, so keep your eyes on us. All right, I love it, I love it, I love the movement, love what you're doing, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break here, last half hours for the members. Uh, and when we do, you gotta get a load of this uh, statement that Trump had. I mean, you wanna talk about outrageous lies? He just, I mean, okay, we'll, we'll save it for then. And Ann Coulter's turned on Donald Trump. Uh, why? I mean, again, outrageous, absurd. But tyt.com slash join to get the last half hour that's just for the members. Uh, and then also for the members tonight, uh, Mark Thompson and I are doing a, a great uh, episode of Old School. So don't miss that either. Members get to watch it live uh, and all of it. You're the only ones who get uh, all of it. So thank you for being members and making this show possible. We'll be right back for you guys.